Good morning. Jesus' miracles are windows that allow us to peer more closely, see more clearly into Jesus' identity and what his kingdom is like. With that in mind, look at one that really tells us a lot about Jesus and his kingdom. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, when Jesus feeds the 5,000. We read the, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus was raised in the northern part of Israel. In Galilee of the Gentiles. He was born in Bethlehem. That's in the south. So he, when they went into, uh, for Jesus' birth, while Mary was pregnant, they went to the south. That's where they were from. That's where their lineage was. And so they were born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth in Galilee of the Gentiles. The majority of Jesus' miracles occur up in the north. Um, the disciples were that called more all but one. Judas Iscariot were from the northern part of Israel. And what we see from that one little thing to, to see is that oftentimes in a religious life, a from precedes a to. And what we're going to see is they were called from something. And because of the distance that they were, that they were experienced in being called from, when Jesus called them to himself, they were in a position to bind to him. I'll tell you what I mean. In the north, as we've said, centuries of religious influence relaxed the religious ties that bound the Jews from the north to Judaism. 
uh, they experienced two different captivities. The northern kingdom experienced a captivity in which their conquerors, the Assyrians, brought in all kinds of religious influences. And so the people in the north didn't have the opportunity to maintain a pure focus. They were hit with all kinds of confusion, and that's why it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a hodgepodge, a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, so they weren't able to hold on to the purity of Judaism. That's why the Jews in the south looked at the Jews of the north and said, half-breeds, and they weren't committed, weren't devout and devoted. Um, to add on top of that, John the Baptist, he did a lot of traveling in the area of Jerusalem, but a lot up, and that's where the disciples, a lot of the disciples that uh, that were called and that became part of Jesus' entourage were from, and John the Baptist pulled them even further. And so what we see is there's a from, and they were pulled from the purity of Judaism by the north and pulled from even further by the ministry of John the Baptist. And I would imagine that that's something maybe happened to some of us. We experienced a from that led to a to. Some of us, in being where we are, are not in the place that we were raised. We're not doing and observing the kind of things that we did when we were young. And there's something about that, not better or worse, but it in this case, allowed these individuals who had experienced or from when Jesus called them to himself, they were able to bind to him. There was some space. They called some things into question. Would you agree with me? Um, it's difficult if you've grown up believing one set of beliefs and then come to see, oh, you know what, I'm not sure if that's exactly right to make that transition. One individual who was unable to make that transition was Judas Iscariot. And as we've seen, all 11 disciples are from the north. All 11. There's one from the south. That's Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, Judas Ish. Kerioth, Isha's man. Kerioth is a town in Jerusalem, town in Israel, about 12 miles away from Jerusalem. So Judas is the man from Kerioth, and he's the man from the south. And I think what ends up happening then as we look at, why wasn't Judas able to hang in with Jesus? I think his ties to Judaism were too tight. They were too tight. He didn't have the from that allowed him to bind to. And it was too much for him. He had too much regard for those who were his leaders. His family was too entrenched in Judaism. And so he was unable to make the switch. And I think Jesus understood that from the early part, the one who was not going to be able to make it would be the man from Kerioth, Judas. There hadn't been a problem. When Jesus calls his disciples, he's about 30. As we've said, this is the traditional time when rabbinic education was completed. Somebody able to be a rabbi in their own. I think I've talked about this before very briefly, though. There were three levels of education. We're at the end of the education of some, Amy, Josh, you completed your high school. Um, in those days, um, your education began when... Um, at the age of six, it was Bet Sefer. That was the first level of education, their elementary school. And what this was about in the Jewish culture, children were taught the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And by the time they were 10, they had memorized them. Okay, They memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, most concluded their formal education at this point. They graduated. 
and they were then went home to learn the family trade, carpentry or fishing. Those students who were who excelled, they could go on to the second of the three, Bet Talmud. This was the house of learning. Students who excelled were allowed to continue between the ages of 10 and 14. They studied and memorized the rest of the Hebrew Bible. During this time, they also learned the Jewish art of questions and answers. Instead of answering with an answer, they were taught to answer with another question, and they could show their regard for Scripture. So began with Bet Sefer, Bet Talmud, then finally Bet Midrash, the house of study. If you were smart enough and knew your Scriptures well enough, memorized the entirety of the Hebrew Bible and what individuals had to say about it, you were given the opportunity to learn from a rabbi, a teacher. This privilege was offered to very few people, very few. Um, you agreed to take on the rabbi's beliefs and his interpretation of the scriptures. This was called his yoke. So when you took on yourself the yoke of the rabbi, what you were doing is you would learn what he learned. You would think like he thought. You would believe as he believed. Once Jesus hits 30, which is about the time, Bet, uh, Bet Midrash, that's about by the time you look at it, all by the time your schooling is completed, you're about 30. The last was about 14, 15 years, so about 30 years old. Then if you went through all these things, you could be a rabbi in your own right. And so at the age of 30, about that time, um, Jesus then calls his disciples. And these disciples that he calls are kind of his students. He is the rabbi, and they are those who will be his disciples, the disciples of a rabbi, he will become absolutely committed to them. His dedication to his disciples will strain his relationship with his family. He will not be quite the same with them. And we looked last week at when he was with his disciples. They couldn't even have time to eat. His parents came and somebody brought word to him that your mother and brothers are outside. And he goes, these are my mother and my brothers. He wasn't being disrespectful. He was being respectful this way. That's what he was called to do, to leave those who would be disciples in his place that would reflect the things that he had come to believe and think, the individuals who would take his yoke upon them and learn how to look at the world and himself and God the way he did. The dedication would sever his relationship with the leadership of Israel as well, especially those in the southern kingdom. And as Jesus then, it's about, as you look at Jesus' ministry, for the first year and a quarter, year and a half, he talked to lots of people, lots of things. About a year and a quarter, a year and a half in, he called his disciples up onto a mountain and said, I pick you, 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 and he picked 12. And that is a turning point in his ministry. What's going to happen after that? He'll go to do evangelism in big areas, but he'll always have his disciples with him. He doesn't go anywhere without them. Those are the ones that he is going to leave. That's his legacy. So when he thinks about how to reach the world, well, Jesus understands, I'm going to leave 12 people who think like I think, know what I know, and through those 12, 2,000 years later, we still experiences his influence. Um, he appointed 12 
so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So that's what he did. He not only taught them, he said, okay, you guys go. It gives them authority, gives them the ability to do some miracles. And so what we read, and now when we get to our miracle, um, he gives them, uh, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And so they just can't wait. And I said this, and I said that, and I said this, and he said this, and I said that. And, you know, and then he's going, and then I did this, and they are just electric. And what he says to them is, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. They said, boy, that sounds good. A little bit of alone time, just mano a mano. Many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. Um, What we think is, this is on the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. As as Moe might have said, Um, they might have been on the far shore. And he said, let's get into a boat, and let's go across. So they went across like this place here. uh, The Sea of Galilee is big, but they might have crossed at a place like this. Um, The reason why that's important is uh, it says, um, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns that got their head of them. So these guys, you can imagine them coming from that point on the far side, coming to this point right close, and then as they're trudging across, there's all the people. And then it was no surprise when they get to the other side of the boat, here's everybody, and there's the disciples saying, oh, there goes our hour and our time. You know, there goes our retreat. Um, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. I imagine the reaction was a little bit different. People were going, oh, more people. Jesus though, says, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This tells us volumes about Jesus. Tells us volumes about him. Tells us volumes about God. Tells us volumes about ourselves. Um, Before we talk about the miracle, let's talk about the miracle worker. It says in Ezekiel, Think about the good shepherd. God predicted this. This is predicted by Ezekiel. It says, I myself, Ezekiel speaking on God's behalf, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. God promised to come personally to shepherd his sheep. In Jesus Christ, the promise has now been fulfilled. He is God coming to shepherd his sheep in a personal way. In Jewish literature, feeding is had a couple of different things. Feeding was what you did when you fed someone Torah. So when those teachers were teaching those six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, they would teach them to memorize the book. And what they would be told is you are memorizing, you are taking in food from God. Take it in. Take it in. Memorize it. Think about it. And so by the time they reached 10, they would have digested the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. They would have fed 
on them. That's, and, and so, um, Jesus supplied the needs of his hearers by both teaching and feeding them. It says he began to teach them many things. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' first inclination is, come here, i got some things to tell you. He understood that they needed just not just things for their stomach, but things for their mind. But he also understood that they needed things for their stomach. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave it to his disciples, to set before them all, divided the fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied. Uh, at different times in the church, the spiritual has been stressed to the, has eclipsed the physical, and the physical eclipses the spiritual. In Jesus' ministry, both were important. Both were important. Um, he met the physical needs. He met spiritual needs. He saw both of them as valid. Love is practical. It means that we care for both body and soul. Um, and in terms of this text, it says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hours now lay. Send them away to go in the surrounding country. Bye. See you later. See you tomorrow. And village and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. We think that it probably this event must have happened in the spring near the time of Passover. That's the time that you can find green grass alongside the Sea of Galilee. So it's probably during the Passover time, since a number of events come, probably late in the afternoon, because there's a, there's a number of things that need to happen. They need to feed the people, gather up the baskets, yada, yada, yada. So it's probably late afternoon, about dinner time, when the miracle occurs. The disciples say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Give it to them to eat. 200 denarii, I guess they thought, well, let me see what we got. We got 5,000 guys. We got women and children. We might have maybe 10, 15,000 people. 200 denarii worth of bread, that maybe we'll just about do it. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Uh, go and see. When they found out, he said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. It's not military. It's Hundreds and fifties are just approximate things that set them down here and there, groups, you know, make it easier to distribute. Um, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and kept breaking. That's just the sense that you get. It's just, you know, at time, hasn't he stopped breaking that bread yet? No, it's still breaking it. You know, breaking it, giving it to these, okay. And he just kept on breaking and giving, breaking, giving, breaking, giving, breaking, giving. Same with the fish. And he just kept it, just kept on being there. Um, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. And of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side of Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Um, there's three statements that if you are alive at that time, uh, you say, holy smokes. You know, that is a miracle. Uh, the first is they all ate and were satisfied. Difficult for modern day readers. We don't get this as much, especially in this country. The idea of eating as much as you wanted and being completely satisfied in those days in this countryside was something that they wouldn't have taken for granted. The fact that not only were they given some, but they were given all that they could eat is significant in this time. It tells us about Jesus as a shepherd and the nature of the kingdom of God. This is a 
banquet of sorts. It's the kind of thing God puts on when he puts on a feed. You don't just get enough to wet your whistle when you're experiencing his kingdom. There is everything. Um, it says that God will fill us with everlasting joys in his presence, and he is not skimpy. God does not skimp when it comes. And on this side of eternity, we're given enough dose of heaven to wet our whistle, to wet our appetite, not satisfy it, whatever appetite that be. On the far side, not just enough to wet our appetite, enough to satisfy. The other statement is that after eating, the disciples took up 12 baskets of fragments, and that would have been for them um, something significant. You know, they are keeping on taking the baskets, but they're probably not all that aware of. So then they have to, and they remember there were five loaves and two, what the heck, these are scraps. The leftover, and that's going to, that's something they're going to remember. Jesus is thinking about them. And the third statement is the number of people that were 5,000 men. And on top of that, women and children, a lot of people were eaten. Jesus' miracles, the reason why he does something like this, it identifies him as the anointed one. The idea of the supernatural. God doing something that clearly is outside the lines of natural processes. Um, I imagine you could take five loaves and two fish and divide it up. Imagine and maybe serve ten to 15,000. You're not going to get very much. And you're definitely not going to get 12 basketfuls left over. Um, miracles in and of themselves, though, as we see biblically, are important, but they are deceptive. They are deceptive. The real indication of what happens on that seaside is not just the miracle, but the miracle worker and what he comes to be. He comes to be the shepherd, the shepherd who cares for his sheep, aware of his sheep needs, feeds his sheep, both soul and body. He's concerned for both because he understands that both are important. Uh, and it's how he does what he does. Gently, it's the character with Jesus, the character with which he both says and does what he does. Um, what it says in Matthew 7, Jesus warned his disciples, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty, miracles, mighty, mighty works in your name? And he will declare to, and I, then I will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, Jesus warns his followers that there will be wolves who will feed on the flock, and as we've said oftentimes, but it bears repeating, that uh, a, a um, somebody who comes in sheep's clothing who is a wolf, is coming as a shepherd, not as a surrogate sheep. You know, again, you see Wile E. Coyote and Bugs Bunny, and when he goes in and he's going to pluck the flock, and he puts the sheep thing in. So you got this little thing with black legs with this puffy, 
<laughs> and he comes out, and that's that's not what it's not what it is. This is a a wolf dressed up like a shepherd, and that's what Jesus said. That's the one you need to watch out for. And what he indicates is that many will, and I think he's talking about these false prophets. They will do miraculous things, and those miraculous things will be used to convince people, see, I'm the real McCoy, and Jesus says, watch out, watch out. Miracles in and of themselves are not foolproof. They can be fabricated. There will be many who will say, remember the prophecy we did and the demons we cast out, remember that? And this, and Jesus is going to say, you never were part of me. I never knew you, and apparently they'd be, they're going to be kind of surprised and be kind of surprised. It's, 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 again, it's not that those miracles didn't happen. It's that they didn't represent who Jesus is and why he does what he does. Jesus does what he does, not because of him, but because he's concerned about sheep. And he understands, well, he's driven by compassion. That's what he's driven by. Driven by compassion. He knows what people are like. He knows how much how needy people are, or as needy as sheep are. And that is what moves Jesus. Um, Jesus is a good shepherd. And in terms of lost sheep, when he went ashore, saw a great crowd, they have compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus says they're like sheep without a shepherd, that you could think of that's an indictment of us as sheep. It's really not, that's not what it's about. When Jesus said they're like sheep without a shepherd, that's an indictment of shepherds, not sheep. It's Jesus indicating there is a critical lack of leadership here. There's a lack of attention to the needs of these people. They are not being regarded for their Needs. They are being preyed upon by individuals who might be leading them, who might be saying they care about them, but really it's not about caring for the sheep. It's about caring for the reputation of the leader. And Jesus is not that. Jesus does not come to you because of what he can get from you. He doesn't need stuff from us. He's God in human form. The reason he comes because as God... You know what the good deal about God is, being God? No, I wouldn't know that. I know what it is to be. Thank you very much. (laughs) When you are God, you don't need anything. So Paul says to the Greeks who didn't understand that, he talks about the God who made the world and everything in it, but he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, for he gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, determined the time set for them and the exact place where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God is not somebody remote who we need to help. We don't, he doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our service. 
He doesn't need our worship. If people don't worship God today, in some part, God's not sulking. He doesn't need it. Why is God involved with us? It's a good question, isn't it? Why? You know, it says he made the world so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Well, he's not far from each one of us. Again, I say a prayer that I, I can pray just about every day. And I either write it or say it, not because it's rote, but because, again, after, <laughs> that's meaningful to me. And again, and I've learned, reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. So I tell him, because if he doesn't reveal himself, we're not going to know him. We're sheep. I mean, we're not that smart. But he reveals himself. You know the most important thing for you and me is to raise our gaze and to know who we're talking to. Know who we're talking to. And that's why he says, reveal yourself. And that as a prayer, I might throw that at you. God, reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. What do you like? What do you like? Help me to see you as you really are. Um, Jesus' observation Sheep without a shepherd again is um, an, a sense of what he sees and what it is he has, and when he sees this crowd of people on a shoreline like that, he sees this crowded with people again, ten, fifteen thousand people. I'm not sure it would fill, but it, 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 a lot of people. Um, clamoring, pushing, straining, and what he saw, it hit him viscerally. It says, when he had compassion on them, the word for compassion, some of the Greek stuff is, is really interesting. The word for what he felt was splachna. Splachna. And you know, it is translated compassion, but literally what it means, it comes from this. It's like the word for bowels. It's It, it just hits him in the gut. Have you ever seen Somebody, you maybe got to a place of an accident or somebody when you're deeply impacted by seeing something and you know it almost, it almost clenches your stomach. Ever that ever happened? It clenches his stomach and he brings forth a sense of I want to be here for these people. And what way did Jesus see people as lost sheep? Matthew helps us. What it says, Matthew 9. Jesus went through all, all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Um, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. It says that what Jesus saw, again, this was just in a um, small city, just people gathering around doing what people do. It might have been downtown Sioux Falls or any place like that. Just people doing what people do, not a religious community. Yeah. And he, he observed that they were harassed and helpless. The imagery is of a predator mangling sheep and throwing them to the ground. That's the image. 
That's, that's what he sees. People walking here and there, what Jesus sees are predators mangling individuals and throwing them to the ground. And what that does to him, it clutches him in his stomach because he's a shepherd and these are sheep. Um, Jesus' observation that they're like sheep without a shepherd is an indictment of shepherds, not the sheep. And we've said this before, but it bears repeating. The difference between, let me see how good you are. What's the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd? How many of you know? Difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. Good. I want to tell you. A bad shepherd will talk about bad sheep. A good shepherd will talk about, what's that? We'll talk about bad shepherds. Why is that? A good shepherd knows that sheep are absolutely dependent on the care of a shepherd. That's why talking about good and bad sheep doesn't make much sense. Sheep are completely dependent on the character of the shepherd. A good sheep with a bad shepherd is going to become a bad sheep. And a sheep with a good shepherd cannot be a bad sheep. Can't be. Here's a question. Do you have a shepherd? And in as much as we have a good shepherd, it doesn't, you know, we might look at ourselves as this, that, or the other. But you know what? Ultimately, if we have a good shepherd, this hit me once. I'm going through, I'm thinking of what my life was at this time. A lot of things I didn't like. And that for all of us, there's, there's things like that. We look in the future and we look where we are and we look at our kids and we look at our life and we look at our retirement. We look at our country. We look at our world. And we end up looking at it, looking where we are. And if you, some of us are more the depressive side. Some of us, we, oh, everything's fine. And some of us are more the half is glasses, half empty. Um, and it strikes me, you know, and I end up remember thinking, Tim, I say, God, it doesn't look like I'm on a good road. It looks like I'm on a bad road. I see. And what ended up hitting me, it, not words, but, you know, that's not a good question for a sheep to ask, is it? Am I on a good road or a bad road? You know the reason why a sheep can't ask that? They can't process the information. They're sheep. Sheep are really dumb. <laughs> if if there were if there's brown forage on that mountain and green on this, you know, bah, you know, you know, sheep are just going to blow over to the brown forage. They just aren't real. Sheep require a lot of care, and um, you know what a good sheep question is? Not am I on a good road or a bad road? By the way, you ever asked that question? You look at where you are. You look at where you thought you would be. You thought about what your future would look like when you had this point in your life. And you see some things out in front of you, and you're like me. 
You're asking, am I in a good road or a bad road? I still think this question. You know what a better question is? Am I on a good road or a bad road? Do I have a good shepherd? Because he is the one. If you have a good shepherd, where are you going to end up? In a good place. Because it's his responsibility. I tell you, you do have a shepherd. It's his job to get you to a good place. It doesn't good. It doesn't look good right now. But he's not done with you yet. Do you have a good shepherd? You will end up in a good place. It's his job to get you to a good place. You say, oh, but you know what, Mike? You don't know me. He knows you. See, it's not about who you are as a sheep, if you're a good or a bad sheep. That doesn't matter. He's a good shepherd. He is well able to lead and guide you. You do not constitute a challenge for him. He's not looking, okay, oh, there's a bad one. Whoa. Travis always gets picked on. I don't know why. He just sits there, just smiling, and he's... says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, I pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. You know what Jesus is saying here? When he looks out, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? There's all kinds of people who might not be in a church this morning. There's people in different countries who seem very evil, and they act in a very evil way. You know what Jesus sees when he looks at Korea? Sheep without a shepherd. We see people in prison. Sheep without a shepherd. Iran, Iraq, Republicans. Democrats? Sheep without a shepherd. Um, you know what he's saying? The harvest is plentiful. It's not a problem with receptivity. The harvest is plentiful. What's the problem? What's the problem? The workers are few. The workers are few. There's not a lot of gentleness out there. There's not caring for soul and body. It's, you know what the deal is? It's not a receiver problem. It's a transmitter problem. That's what he's saying. Before we can solve a problem, we've got to understand it. And that's what Jesus understands. You know why? That's why he spent his life creating 12 transmitters. That's what he does. People who take the message and project it, because if the message goes out as it's intended to go out, there is not a sheep out there who won't respond to a God who cares about him. Now, not all of them will see it. I'm not saying that they can all see it. They can't. 
But if it were possible for them to see him as he is, they would not flip him off. I didn't know he was like that. Why didn't anybody tell me he was like that? I would have bowed before someone like that. That's not who was reflected to me when I grew up. That's not what I heard. That's not what I saw. I didn't know he was like that. And that's why Jesus, when he comes, he understands the problem. It's not a trans, it's not a receiver problem, it's a transmitter problem. Um, it's what it says in Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. When, when somebody hobbles and you're a shepherd, you don't throw them out. You stop and you help them. When somebody stumbles by the wayside, you don't rush on. You stop and go back and help. The injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, says in Ezekiel. So, they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And that's why Jesus said, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. I am the shepherd that was predicted. And they are my sheep. You can't fix the problem before it's accurately diagnosed. If an individual is ignorant and going astray as a sheep, an individual who is ignorant and going astray, what does that individual need? A good shepherd. There is not a spiritual issue you have in your life that wouldn't be at least ministered to by understanding that you have a good shepherd, and then at the end, well, I think here's what David came to to hear. That's the worship team come up. You close your eyes, though. Close your eyes. I'm going to tell you what David wrote. Close your eyes. I'm going to prove to you something right now. Keep your eyes closed, but I'm going to prove something to you. I want you to listen to this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why don't you open your eyes? You know why you're touched by that? Because you are sheep and you understand how important it is to have a shepherd. We pray for us. Father, thank you for um, your understanding of humanity. You understand that sheep need a shepherd. And not just any shepherd, but a good shepherd who knows the sheep is willing to lay down his life for them. In the context of that security, sheep learn to trust the voice of the shepherd. Would you help us to see you as you are? Would you reveal yourself to us? And as you do so, will you teach us to recognize your voice, distinguish it from the voice of those who claim to speak for you and don't, so that we might become more responsive to you? And thank you that Regardless, you are going to lead us on a road, and I pray that you would continue to work in us and through us that which you wish. In Jesus' name, amen.